0: Hi everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick and greetings to all of you listening from places like Catonsville, Maryland, Valrico, Florida, Oakland, California, Managua, Nicaragua, Recife, Brazil, and Surrey, England. Thanks for joining me, and, you know, I think I've finally recovered from the chaos of Monterey Car Week, which is always a whirlwind of activity, but wow, what a great year it was. And, you know, after a week of seeing such mind-blowing cars and talking with so many great people, I always have a hard time with re-entry, but anyway, I'm back in the saddle, and today I've got a great story for you. And actually, we haven't done a storytelling episode for a while now, because I've been busy with a lot of terrific guests over the last few months but I really like to bring you these short documentary pieces. I hope you enjoy them. It's like theater of the mind, right? And they're fun to put together. By the way, the show has hit 75 episodes now, and before you know it, we're going to be at 100. And it's all because of you. So I think we need to celebrate that, and the occasion deserves a special guest. And I want you to help me decide who that could be. So send me your suggestions. You can reach me on Instagram, at HorsepowerHeritage, or go to HorsepowerHeritage.com, click on the contact button there, And send me a message. And if your suggestion turns out to be the special guest for episode 100, I will reward you handsomely. I'm not quite sure how I'm going to do that yet, but it could be merch, which is in the works, or maybe a gift certificate to Model Citizen Diecast. But it's going to be cool, whatever it is. So send in those suggestions and don't wait around because it might take me some planning. And also don't forget to leave me a five-star rating and a quick review if you haven't done that yet. It really helps grow the show. All right, well, today I've got the story of a guy that I think is kind of an unsung hero of American automotive design. But during his career, he helped pull two car companies back from the brink of failure and look toward the future. His name was Virgil Exner, and he had the forward look. And that's coming up right after this. This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. No matter what's in your garage, you can fit all your automotive heroes on a shelf. And they've got you covered, whether it's 143rd scale, 118th scale, or even the ginormous 18 scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. Go to ModelCitizenDiecast.com and get 10% off when you use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout. Limitations apply. From race cars to street cars and everything in between, it's Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. And now the story of Virgil Exner and the forward look, right here on Horsepower Heritage. In 1909, the American car industry was in its infancy. The Ford Model T had just been introduced, General Motors was newly formed, and Studebaker was known mostly for its horse-drawn wagons. Hundreds of car makers like Knox, Winton, and Stanley would vanish from the scene in the years to come. But in 1909, it must have felt as if anything was possible, even if the future carried so much uncertainty. And it was in that autumn that Virgil William Anderson was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, to an unmarried 20-year-old housekeeper. She'd had a fleeting romance with a traveling salesman, and the boy was given up for adoption to a couple named George and Iva Exner. As he grew up, Virgil showed mechanical and artistic aptitude and a fascination with automobiles, especially Duesenberg's. In the fall of 1926, it was off to South Bend, Indiana, and the University of Notre Dame to study art. But after two years, Exner had run out of money, He found a job as an office boy at an advertising agency in South Bend, and before too long, his talent and interest got the attention of the staff artists. One of the biggest accounts at the firm was the Studebaker Corporation, which was headquartered in South Bend. It gave him an opportunity to illustrate cars professionally, and after some years, he got his next big break, this time in Detroit. Someone suggested he should show his portfolio to Harley Earl at General Motors. Now, Harley Earl was arguably the most important man in Detroit when it came to the appearance of an automobile. He grew up in Hollywood, California, the son of a wagon maker and coach builder. And in 1927, he went to GM to design bodies for the new LaSalle, which was basically a more affordable Cadillac. That was the start of GM's art and color section, the first of its kind in the American car business. And by 1933, when Virgil Exner came to pitch his portfolio, the art and color section was growing by leaps and bounds. One of his biggest contributions was for Pontiac, when he added a fluted chrome panel down the hood of the car, and this so-called silver streak trim became a Pontiac style characteristic for the next 20 years. Exner was in on the ground floor of Detroit's first styling department, and under Harley Earl's direction, it would set many industry standards for decades including the use of full-scale clay models and the release of show cars, which were of course great as publicity tools but also as exciting design exercises that would forecast the future direction of General Motors' various divisions. Exner rose to become chief of the Pontiac Styling Studio. Meanwhile, back in South Bend, Studebaker had been nearly bankrupted by a series of bad management decisions. By the late 1930s, they were starting to climb out of that hole and the idea of establishing a styling department was being pursued. The first step was to hire an outside firm to get the ball rolling. So they turned to one of the most prominent industrial designers in the country. A man who was well regarded for his use of streamlining in everything from locomotives to office equipment. And so it was that in 1938, Virgil Exner found himself in the New York offices of Raymond Lowy Associates. His connections with Studebaker and his experience at Pontiac made him a natural fit, and he was hired immediately. One of the first jobs was touch-up work on the 39 Studebaker Champion, which was the low-cost model, but it became a top seller. By 1941, Exner was setting up the in-house design team in South Bend even though Raymond Lowy still had a contract to fulfill. But when the war came and all automobile production stopped, Exner was helping to design amphibious assault craft, like the GM-built DUKW, or DUCK as it became known, and the Studebaker Weasel, a tracked personnel carrier. They were basically rugged, floating trucks, and they saw action in beach landings from Normandy to Iwo Jima. Although the fighting continued, by 1944 the tide had turned against the Axis powers and Studebaker executives began to plan their post-war product line. However, their contract with Raymond Lowy hadn't exactly been trouble-free because he insisted on final approval of all aspects of each design and his need to travel between his New York office and South Bend caused delays in decision-making and it strained the relationship between Lowy and Studebaker. In their frustration, some of the executives suggested to Exner that he should quietly gather a few of his closest colleagues and start a parallel design program, just in case. And that's exactly what happened. There had already been tension and creative disagreements between Raymond Lowy and Virgil Exner, but when Lowy eventually discovered that Exner had been moonlighting, he fired him on the spot. Fortunately, Studebaker's vice president of engineering, Roy Cole, was standing there too, and he offered Exner a job immediately. Cole couldn't get rid of Lowy, though, as much as he wanted to, and their contract ran until 1955. But more importantly, Studebaker beat the rest of the auto industry to market in 1947 with an all new body and chassis, while everyone else was selling facelifted 1942 models. Studebaker's tagline was first by far with a post war car. Their flagship was the Starlight Coupe, and it really was ahead of the competition. With integrated front fenders, a full-width grille, smooth-flowing rocker panels, a sloping and tapered rear decklid, and most distinctively, very futuristic wraparound rear glass that was more similar to an airplane than a car, the Starlight was the product of Exner's after-hours design team but he never really got official credit for it since Raymond Lowy was still in charge of the overall program. It was clear that this adversarial relationship was never going to favor Exner and that it was time to move on. Luckily, he'd built a solid reputation as a designer who could break with convention and take things in new directions. And that's what was desperately needed over at Chrysler Corporation, because they were caught flat-footed in the late 1940s building stodgy, unimaginative cars. Chrysler's president, K.T. Keller, was an engineering man, and he hadn't seen the point of having a styling department. But beyond that, he'd been burned early in his tenure by a car called the Chrysler Airflow. It was a groundbreaking, streamlined design that was supposed to catapult the company far ahead of their rivals. But instead, it had been a sales disaster, too radical a change. And it came out in 1934, when the country was in the agony of the Great Depression. The airflow had all that bold optimism that was so emblematic of the 1920s. And from a design standpoint, it was certainly ahead of its time. But it came on the market too late, because that optimism had dried up like an Oklahoma farm in the Dust Bowl. So K.T. Keller wasn't taking any chances in the late 40s. Much like General Motors, there was a hierarchy of nameplates. Dodge, Plymouth, DeSoto, and the -the top-of-the-line Chrysler cars. But very few distinguishing outward features existed among them other than the trim level and optional equipment. They all had a bulbous, heavy look with tall roof lines, which supposedly Keller insisted on because he believed that passengers should be able to wear their hats in his cars. And nothing hinted at performance or innovation. So although the underlying engineering was good and they had loyal customers, the styling undersold what Chrysler was capable of doing, and sales were soon outpaced by GM and Ford. But all of that was about to change, because in 1949, K.T. Keller hired Virgil Exner to bring a different look to the Chrysler line. With a booming post-war economy and a hungry buying public, maybe they could afford to try something new. Production cars weren't the first order of business, though, because Keller was still exceedingly cautious. Instead, Exner would be initially responsible for a series of what they called idea cars, what we know simply as concept cars today. And at the same time, another key partnership materialized that helped to separate Chrysler's future direction from its competition. In keeping with his cautious approach, Keller had been looking for a way to produce the idea cars at a lower cost. And he found it in Italy, of all places, at the coach-building firm of Carrozzeria Ghia. Not only did the Italians know how to shape metal like no one else, they could do it for pennies on the dollar and they were hungry for business, given the state of Italy's post-war economy. The first Ghia idea car was the Plymouth XX500, which established the basic design language. And from that baseline, Exner worked closely with Gia's designers, and from 1950 onwards, a series of elegant idea cars came streaming out of the Turin factory. Sexy coupes with egg crate grills, fully radiused wheel arches, and sultry, curving roof lines with skinny pillars and plenty of glass. Even though they were built on a full-size Chrysler chassis, the coachwork made the cars look light and delicate. And the performance matched the looks, too, because in 1950, Chrysler released the revolutionary Hemi V8. During World War II, they'd experimented with an inline liquid-cooled, inverted V16 aircraft engine that incorporated hemispherical combustion chambers, which weren't anything new, but most car makers didn't bother with Hemi heads, mainly due to more complex engineering and manufacturing and naturally added expense. For most buyers, a flathead engine would do just fine. The combustion chambers and piston crown in a Hemi head are dome-shaped, and the intake and exhaust valves are set at a steeper angle, and they're also much bigger. In practice, it makes for higher compression and more efficient combustion and gas flow. Of course, there are trade-offs. For example, Hemi heads are bigger and heavier, and as I said, more complex to build. But Chrysler's marketing was really, really good at selling the performance of the Hemi with engine names like Firepower, Firedome, and Red Ram. As head of what they called the Advanced Styling Studio, Exner was basically running an experimental laboratory. Then, in 1952, he was shown plans for the 1955 model range. And when he saw them, he warned K.T. Keller that it was a disaster. There wasn't much time for revisions, but Exner was finally given the authority to put his touch on the production cars. This was the first time the engineering department wasn't in charge of how a car would look, and Virgil Exner became the first director of styling in Chrysler's history. Everything he'd learned 20 years earlier in the GM art and color section now became a reality at Chrysler. At 44 years old, Exner cut a striking figure. Tall and slim, always impeccably dressed... With a distinctive wave in his manicured silver hair, he looked more like a movie star than a Detroit man, and Chrysler executives put him up front as the face of the company. In 18 months, his team worked furiously to spice up the 55 lineup, using a Gia Idea car called the K310 as their initial inspiration. As his team worked their way through the range, each car was a big departure from the old look, lower, leaner, and sleeker in every dimension. Even the entry-level Plymouth offered a lot of style for the money. And not a moment too soon, because Chrysler lost nearly a billion dollars in 1954, badly trailing GM and Ford. Smaller car makers were sinking fast. Hudson and Nash joined forces to become the American Motors Corporation. Kaiser Fraser quit building passenger cars and merged with Willys Overland to build Jeeps. And Packard, one of the greatest names in automotive history, made a last-ditch effort to stay in the game when they bought Studebaker, not fully aware of that company's own dire financial straits. The once-prestigious Packard nameplate wouldn't survive the decade, building a measly 2,600 cars in 1958. But the 1955 Chrysler Corporation lineup hit the jackpot with modern looks and performance, and Madison Avenue had the marketing to match. Chrysler's longtime advertising agency, McCann Erickson, came up with three words in a modern typeface that seemed to say it all. The forward look. Look, look to the forward look. Everything about it is brand new. All the country took to the forward look. And so by Jim will you... Together with a stylized double boomerang logo, that simple phrase announced to the world that the future was here. All you had to do was visit your Chrysler dealer. And starting in 1955, the Imperial was now its own line of luxury cars, big and imposing. The car that was most like the Gia Idea cars with radiused wheel wells, a split egg crate grille, and gun sight taillights, going head to head with Cadillac and Lincoln. It all added up to a record year for the company, with $3.5 billion in sales. And Virgil Exner was just getting started. The 1955 cars introduced ever-so-subtle tail fins, which weren't the first in the industry, but they would soon be the boldest. The tail fin first appeared on the 1948 Cadillac. Credit usually goes to Harley Earl, but it should really go to one of his designers, Franklin Quick Hershey. His inspiration was the Lockheed P-38 Lightning fighter plane, with its twin-boom tail. And if you look at a forty eight Cadillac, the profile is the same as the Lightning from the rear fender's back. Frank Hershey later went to Ford, where he designed the first Thunderbird. Anyway, the tail fin was a styling cue that genuinely fascinated Exner, and for him it wasn't just a fashion trend he was convinced that a dart or wedge profile was the most efficient shape, building on the streamlining that had been popular in the 1930s. Working with the engineers at Ghia in Turin, they conducted a series of wind tunnel tests with scale models at speeds up to 200 miles per hour. And full-size testing was done on the bank track at Chrysler's Chelsea Proving Grounds in Michigan. The conclusion was that tail fins improved lateral stability And Exner was optimistic about benefits and performance and fuel economy as well. Horsepower Heritage will be back right after this. Hey, if you're enjoying this episode on Virgil Exner and the forward look, then you'll enjoy my episode on Chrysler's turbine cars. Check out the Horsepower Heritage back catalog from June 2nd, 2021. And now, back to the show. Virgil Exner's forward-look cars grew ever more audacious. Follow the leaders. Follow the leaders in every town and city who agree that the Chrysler Corporation cars are styled right. They're styled way ahead of all other cars. Follow the leaders. Follow the leaders who go for the fins of the forward-look cars. Pins that mean easier handling, greater stability, as well as the look of motion. That's right, motion. Follow the leaders through Chrysler Corporation to the leader in styling, leader in engineering. Follow the leaders through Chrysler Corporation. And the 1957 line really epitomized his wedge philosophy. The newest new cars in 20 years! In styling, they're completely new. Take the 1957 Plymouth Fury, for example. The 1957 Plymouth with the new shape of motion. It had a slanted front-end profile, first in the industry quad headlamps a lower and longer body and flattened hood and trunk, and a dramatically rear-swept windscreen and a slim roofline topped off with the biggest pair of tail fins you could get. They also had a torsion bar suspension, which kept the cars level and also reduced overall height by several inches. And that low look was something Exner had considered essential. New, lower than ever. This year, the Plymouth is as much as five inches lower. In fact, in the low price field, it's the lowest. He was right because no one else matched it. And a new Plymouth slogan illustrated how far ahead Chrysler seemed compared to the competition. Suddenly, it's 1960. And for the second time in two years, they got the jump on GM and Ford, whose cars looked bulky and overworked by comparison. It's even said that General Motors' director of styling, Bill Mitchell, happened to drive by a yard behind the Chrysler factory, and when he spotted some of the pre-production cars parked out there, he realized GM was totally outgunned. So when he succeeded Harley Earl in 1958, Mitchell started fresh, determined never to get shown up again. Exner's design aesthetic fit in perfectly with other trends of the time. Whether it was the furniture of Charles and Ray Eames, the architecture of Richard Neutra or Joseph Eichler, and when it came to cars, he had even eclipsed his old rival, Raymond Lowy. But he nearly paid for that success with his life, because years of working long hours fueled by black coffee in the morning, cocktails in the evening, and cigarettes around the clock had taken their toll. And in the summer of 1956, Virgil Exner barely survived a massive heart attack. Once he was out of the hospital, he took a long rest at home. His loyal and close-knit design team pressed on with mild facelifts for 1958. Meanwhile, the 57 lineup was winning industry awards and shaking everything up. A year after his heart attack, Exner was promoted to Executive Vice President and Director of Styling. It was the second time they'd created a position just for him. But his time away from the office had left a void that was filled by another designer, Bill Schmidt, who was brought on by nervous executives unsure if Exner would ever return. Schmidt's hiring eventually created a power struggle. Exner justifiably felt threatened and undermined. Things had changed, and he began to work by himself in secret after he concluded that the design direction was getting stale. And he realized Finns were doomed to be a fad after all, despite any wind tunnel data. Exner won the power struggle and Bill Schmidt left the company, but by 1959, Chrysler's styling department was in an existential crisis. And the success of the 1957 line wasn't repeated. Exner wanted to find a new paradigm, but it was hard to make a clean break from the tail fins, and it's clear that he wrestled with a way to stay ahead of the competition. All of these factors, combined with his poor health and just plain exhaustion, caused the styling department to lose its cohesion and sense of direction. The styling got downright bizarre, as if the entire team had been drinking magic mushroom tea. Suddenly, the cars had horizontal fins, weird headlight configurations, and funky sculpting. By 1961, Chrysler's fortunes had fallen and sales were poor. Exner was put out to pasture, replaced by Elwood Engel, who came over from Ford and had designed the four-seat Thunderbird in 1958 and the slab-sided 1961 Lincoln Continental, both of which were a big success. After leaving Chrysler, Exner opened his own design firm, working on powerboats and concept cars, especially a few attempted revivals of great names like Bugatti, Duesenberg, and Stutz. But times had changed dramatically. The car industry had entered another conservative period, and no one was taking any chances. And Exner's sensibilities, if anything, had gotten wilder, not more reserved. It might have been out of a sinking sense of desperation, but whatever the reason, His approach was drastically out of favor by the mid-1960s. Virgil Exner never really regained his health. He had advanced heart disease after years of chain smoking, and in December of 1973, he died after suffering a massive cerebral aneurysm. He was 64 years old. Exner's legacy was basically on the shelf for several decades. But with the mercy of time and distance, it's clear that he made a dramatic impact on American car design in the critical decade of the 1950s. It was inevitable that his designs would be considered passe at a certain point. The pendulum is destined to swing, just as it had done with Harley Earl and others. He had some excesses, for sure, but one could argue that it was in the heat of battle when Detroit was all-powerful and the intense competition meant that nothing seemed out of bounds. They could do anything, and they did. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. Don't forget to click that follow button, leave me five stars, and a quick review. I'll see you back here on Wednesday, September 21st, when we'll be talking about Le Mans, Daytona, and the love of air-cooled Porsches. My guest is veteran racing driver Patrick Long. So until then, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.